So we're in the third week of a new sermon series all about Jesus's miracles. And I certainly hope you're enjoying this series as much as I am. Today we come to one of the more dramatic miracles of Jesus, the scene of Jesus walking on water. I think if you asked a random group of people to name one miracle of Jesus, there's a pretty good likelihood that the majority of them would come up with this miracle. It's a miracle that has often appeared in popular culture. One of my favorite movies is a 1979 film called Being There, in which Peter Sellers plays a character that is sort of a Christ figure. Nobody in the movie can figure out whether he's actually a messiah or just sort of an ignoramus. And at the end of the movie, he walks away from the camera, steps onto the surface of a lake, and keeps walking. And it's a, it's a wonderful visual image, and it speaks to the fact that even now, even in our own time, it's just an incredibly impressive thing that someone could walk on water. So let's turn to that reading. We're in the 14th chapter of Matthew, and I'll be reading verses 22 to 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land. For the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking towards them on the lake. But when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Prepare our hearts, O God, to hear your word. Silence in us any voices but your own so that your wisdom might penetrate our defenses and take root deep within us. Through Christ our Lord, amen. I want to start by reminding you of something that I've said every week during this series, which is that there are always many different levels to Jesus' miracles. There's a surface level. I sort of call this the obvious miracle, and that's the incredible thing that Jesus does. He turns water to wine. He heals people of illnesses that seemed incurable. A lot of people think that that's where the miracle ends. But what we've been talking about these last few weeks is that that obvious miracle is never the only point, and in fact, it may not even be the main point. The main point, what I like to call the big miracle, is how these events change the world in which they take place. For example, we looked at a story in which Jesus heals these two women who are from much different social classes, and we learned that it wasn't just a medical phenomenon, it was a social one. The obvious miracle is that these two women were healed, but the big miracle 
is that this healing gave us a glimpse of what real community is supposed to look like in the kingdom of God. Last week, we looked at the story of the loaves and fishes. The obvious miracle is that Jesus somehow takes two fish and five loaves of bread and manages to feed 15,000 people with that. And that is a really cool trick that seems to defy the laws of nature. But that's not the main point of the story. The big miracle is that this event brings about a moment in which all of these different people share what they have and learn to rely on God to meet their deepest needs. They learn that if they give God the little bit that they have and trust him with that, then he can take that and make incredible things happen. So this is also the case with today's story. It works on multiple levels. As amazing as it is to think of Jesus walking on the water, in some ways that's the small miracle because something bigger is going on. And that's what I want to try to uncover with you today. First, a little context. We're picking up the action exactly where we left off last week. 15,000 people have just eaten their fill of fish and bread. It is a miracle of abundance. But at some point, of course, this party has to end. So Jesus dismisses everyone. He sends them all home. I kind of imagine that it's like a music festival that has just ended. Everyone kind of shuffles out of the gates and, you know, they've just experienced this wonderful thing, but they have to go back home and then they leave a field full of fish bones and and crumbs for someone else to pick up. So Jesus gives the disciples this command, which probably seemed a little bit odd to them. He says, I want you to go into the boat by yourselves. You go to the other side of the lake. I'm going to stay here. I'll meet you later. So he's removing himself. And at first, we don't know what he's up to. Why does he send the disciples off by themselves? Well, in the next verse, we get a clue because Jesus says that he's going to go up a mountain to pray. Why is that a clue? It's because in the Bible, whenever someone goes up a mountain, there's a good chance that we're going to have what theologians call a theophany. All right, this is a big word. It simply means a moment in which God reveals himself to people in tangible ways. And interestingly, in the Bible, this often happens on top of mountains. Where does Noah encounter God after the flood? Mount Ararat. Where does Abraham encounter God during the sacrifice of Isaac? Mount Moriah. Where does Moses receive the Ten Commandments? Directly from God, Mount Sinai. In fact, the first time Moses meets God, it is also on a mountain. Moses is grazing some sheep on Mount Horeb when he sees a bush that is burning, but it's not extinguished. Out of this fire comes the voice of God, who tells Moses this strange idea that he's going to use him to rescue the Israelites from slavery. Now, at this point in the Bible, Moses doesn't really know who God is. He, of course, has been living in Egypt. And so Moses asks this voice, what is your name? People are going to ask me who you are. What should I tell them your name is? God responds with a wonderfully cryptic answer. He says to Moses, tell them I am. Sort of reminds me of a Dr. Seuss book. I am who I am. But it's also a beautiful way of expressing a reality that cannot be contained by language. Paul Tillich once said that God is the ground of all being. God is the spirit, the mind, the life behind life itself. And if that is true, then this name expressed in Exodus is actually rather precise. Tell the people, I am that which exists. Tell them I am being itself. 
Now, here's the thing to know. All ancient Jews knew this story. The disciples knew this story. They knew that God defined himself with this cryptic phrase, I am. And in a moment, you'll see why that is important. Let's return to our reading. Jesus has been up on another mountain, which is a clue that perhaps a theophany is coming. God is going to reveal himself. It is the middle of the night. The disciples are in their boat alone, and a storm has arisen. They are afraid. They are struggling because the wind is against them. The waves are crashing against the boat. Suddenly, they look out, and they see a person walking towards them on the surface of the water. Their reaction is, I think, entirely appropriate. They're terrified. They cry out in fear. It's a moment of chaos. Their first reaction is to think that perhaps this is a ghost who has come to haunt them. But what it really is, is a theophany. It's God appearing, not on a mountain, but in the middle of a storm. The first thing that Jesus says is, he says, do not be afraid, take heart. But then comes the really important phrase, I am. He tells the disciples, it is I. But when you look at the Greek, it is precisely the same wording that Moses hears when he encounters God on Mount Horeb. Ego eimi, I am existence itself. So now we're seeing the big miracle. This is not a cool parlor trick. Isn't it neat that somebody can float on the top of the water? This is Jesus revealing who he really is. He's more than a teacher. He's more than a healer. He's more than a miracle worker. This is God incarnate in a new way. God is doing something new. And as you can imagine, this is completely overwhelming for the disciples. And it causes an interesting reaction in the disciple named Peter. Peter decides, for whatever reason, that he wants to go into this storm. (laughs) Lord, call me out of the boat and I'll come to you. So Jesus says, okay, come. Peter takes a tentative first step onto the surface of the water, and my goodness, it's working. He takes another step. He is walking on water, but then his attention goes to the wind. He starts to become afraid of the storm, and immediately he begins to sink into the raging sea. And so he calls out a desperate prayer, Lord, save me. Jesus reaches out his hand, rescues Peter, and they get back into the boat. And at that, the wind suddenly stops, and now these men see that not only can this person walk on water, he tells the storm to be calm, and it listens to him. All the disciples can do is to say these words, truly you are the Son of God. So what are we to make of this miracle? I want to make a few brief points. First, I think that this story is telling us that we have to let God be God. We learn this through Peter, who is such a sympathetic character. Peter, throughout the Gospels, is always making mistakes. But thank goodness he does. Because it's through watching him make mistakes that we learn what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. And what Peter shows us in this story is that if you can keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, he will hold you above the storm. But as soon as you avert your eyes and look at the wind, you start to sink. The lesson is pretty simple. You're not God. It seems that Peter may think 
that he has the same miraculous power that Jesus has. He sees Jesus walking on water and he thinks, wow, maybe, maybe I can do that. No, you can't, Peter. Not by yourself, you can't. You are not God. It sounds so simple, but it's something that all people struggle with. What happens when you dismiss God or you live as if God doesn't exist is that you have to become your own God. Because if there is no Savior in your life, you have to become your own Savior. That leads to many things, among them a sense of narcissism that I think we see a lot in the world today. There's this great scene in the Woody Allen movie, Stardust Memories. Woody Allen, if you've seen any of his movies, you know he often plays these very self-absorbed characters. In this particular movie, everybody accuses him of being a narcissist. And he has the most wonderful reply. He says, people say that I'm a a narcissist, but you know the Greek god that I identify with is not Narcissus, it's Zeus. (laughs) By which he's proving his narcissism. And I think that this describes a lot of people in the world. They think that the world will bend to their will until they begin to sink. And only then do they realize that they can't save themselves. Ask yourself this question. If you are God, then who do you turn to when you're sinking in the storm? With Christ, we get a Savior who doesn't hold our narcissism against us. Jesus is so tender and forgiving with Peter. He reaches out, he pulls him up out of the sea. He says, Peter, why did you doubt? As Peter sits in the boat, shivering, of course he knows that Jesus has just saved his life. I think he must feel relieved that he is not God. Because when people try to be their own God, honestly, it's a lot of pressure. We, we talked a lot about this last week, that so many people feel burned out. So many people have compassion fatigue. One of the reasons that so many people are stressed out is that they're trying to save the world. This story shows us that you can't do that. Now, Jesus can do amazing things through you if you give Jesus the little you have, your bread and your fish. He can multiply them. But by yourself, you cannot walk on water. So give yourself a break. You have a Savior who can pull you up out of the storms if you fix your eyes on him. And that is possibly the most powerful lesson from this story. It's something that we heard from the anthem that uh, we heard so beautifully today. I want to thank Tom. I, I think I sent him an email on Wednesday maybe of this week saying, Hey, Tom, have you ever heard of this anthem? And he prepared it for us for today. This beautiful anthem comes from the black church. Of course, nobody knows who wrote it. It comes from an oral tradition of people whose faith kept them afloat in the most devastating suffering. And I want to say a word about why you might want to listen to what the tradition of the black church has to say. I had the privilege of, of learning with uh, James Cone when I was in seminary in New York. James Cone was one of the most important figures in the field of black theology. Most of us, his students, were white, but he used to tell us that if we wanted to understand the gospel, we should start with the black church, because there is no other American tradition that more closely resembles what the earliest Christians went through than the black church in America. 
The earliest Christians were constantly beset by storms. There was always a threat of crucifixion hanging over them. They were looked on with scorn by just about everybody, just like black Americans, lived with the constant threat of violence hanging over them. And therefore, the wisdom of this tradition can be trusted because the black church figured out how to have faith in the midst of storms. And here's what they figured out. If you want to stay afloat, stay your mind on Jesus. Woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. Walking and talking with my mind stayed on Jesus. There's no condemnation in my mind when it stayed on Jesus. You can't hate your neighbor in your mind when it stayed on Jesus. You love everybody with your mind when it stayed on Jesus. The devil can't catch you in your mind when it stayed on Jesus. Jesus is your captain when your mind is stayed on Jesus. You look away from Jesus, you sink. You look to him with humility and he keeps you afloat. And I think that's a vital lesson because the Christian life always contains storms. I mean, I think some people have this idea that if they become Christian, their lives will get easier. And I hate to tell you this, but it'll probably get harder. (laughs) Because when you follow Jesus, he will bring you into storms. I mean, you may have noticed in this reading that Jesus sent the disciples into the boat alone, knowing there was a storm coming. He sent them into the storm, and then he walked through the storm to get to them, to rescue them. Following Jesus is not about having an easy life. It's about having a meaningful life, which is so much better. The physician Paul Brand, who spent his life treating leprosy in India, he once said this about Americans. Of course, he had spent decades working with people who really understood what deep, deep physical suffering was all about. And he said, in his experience, Americans are the least capable of anybody he's ever met of dealing with suffering. He wrote, I went to America and I found a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. And he noted in this uh, essay that he wrote that there was an irony to this. Because in his words, American patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, and yet they seemed less equipped to handle suffering and more traumatized by it. Now, he wrote this 30 years ago. What would he say now? Our society has so many more ways of avoiding suffering now. All of our screens, all of our fast food, all of our our cheap products, our pornography, all of the ways we have to zone out from what's really happening in the world. So how do we develop the ability to walk into storms without sinking? We keep our eyes on Jesus. In all fairness, I think I was probably being a little unfair to Peter when I said that he was merely a narcissist. I think there may have been something else going on for Peter, which is that by this point in the story, he had fallen in love with Christ. Of course, not in a romantic way, but his heart was on fire with love for the person of Jesus Christ. How could it not be? He had been living alongside God incarnate. He had tasted the excitement and the hope of all of these crowds when they experienced the healing that Jesus brought. And therefore, he wanted to be with Jesus wherever he was, even in the midst of a storm. And I think that makes Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry, Peter, Jesus is also a model to follow, but I think Peter in this scene is a model to follow because he sees Jesus in this storm and his instinct is to go to him. Danger be damned. 
It's almost like he's saying, I would rather be with Jesus in the midst of a storm than be alone in the sunshine. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for entering into the storms of our own lives. We pray that you would give us the wisdom to stop trying to save ourselves and instead to trust in your power and your freedom. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.